Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Well, good evening. It's great to see everybody tonight. I'm John Hardman, President and CEO of the Carter Center, and we welcome all of you joining us by webcast tonight. The Conversation Series is a series here at the Center that we invite all of the people in our neighborhood and in, in Atlanta to come and hear about the work of the Carter Center uh, and to hear about current and world affairs and issues that the Carter Center is working on. But tonight's event is primarily uh, for our donors and for our ambassador and legacy circle people. So all of our community uh, friends are joining us by webcast, and so we welcome them to this live webcast event. Since it is being webcast, it will also be uh, on the Carter Center website. So I encourage you to, in, to tell your friends that this is uh, something that they can tune into and watch when you get back home and you can share that information and tonight's panel discussion with them. Tonight's topic is mental illness, myths, and realities. And mental illnesses are extremely common. One in four Americans will probably experience a mental illness this year. And we have major advances and an understanding of mental illness that didn't exist even 10 years ago. But public perception hasn't changed that much. And so many people incorrectly believe that mental illnesses cannot be treated or that a person with mental illness is likely to be violent. So we hope to change that perception tonight. Mrs. Carter founded the Carter Center Mental Health Program at Emory University in 1985. But the program began here at the center in 1991 with the creation of our mental health task force. The work that we strive for under her leadership is based on reducing stigma and discrimination against people with mental illnesses. We also try to achieve equity on, with mental health care comparable to any health care in the world. And we want to advance the promotion, prevention, and early intervention of services for children and their families, and to increase awareness worldwide about mental health and mental illnesses so that local groups can take action to address those issues in their communities. This year, we are celebrating the 100th Rosalind Carter Fellowship in Mental Health Journalism which is a wonderful program here at the center bringing journalists from around the world and, the, and but primarily from the U.S. to focus on a mental health issue during their fellowship year. You can also go to our website and find out more about the Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalist. And this will be the 25th year of our annual symposium. And this symposium focuses on mental health policy, and you can also go to our website and find information on the past 24 mental health symposia that we've had here. We want to congratulate Mrs. Carter and the mental health team for the efforts that they have made on passing the parity bill 
And this is legislation in which Congress has stated that mental diseases will be seen and treated like any other physical disease. So let's applaud. And Mrs. Carter has really spearheaded the effort on parity, and, and the work is just beginning. That is, uh, just because a bill is passed doesn't mean all the details are worked out, and so there's much work to be done, and Mrs. Carter is totally committed on making that happen. And we are pleased that she is with us tonight, and join me in welcoming Rosalind Carter. Thank you. Thank you, John, and welcome everybody to the Carter Center. This is the first time I've gotten to see you, and I'm really looking forward to the next few days um, being with you. Um, John told you that we had these, what we call conversations at the Carter Center, um, four or five times a year, uh, open to the public. This one is not mine because you all are here and uh, we couldn't open it to the public, but I'm glad that you are here when it's my time. <laughs> because we, we take turns, the different programs take turns um, having the events, and this just happened to be my time, and so I guess you'll know what the subject will be, and that is, if it's mine, it's mental health. Um, most of you, I think, know that I work in mental health, but I don't know how many of you know how I got started in, in this work, and um, uh, this is the question I get all of the time, so I thought I would tell you today, uh, tonight, um, how I got started. I was campaigning for Jimmy when he ran for governor the first time. I don't know how many of you know that he ran and lost the first time. But our leading Democratic candidate had dropped out with a heart attack, and um, Jimmy came to Atlanta to see who was going to run. We had Lester Maddox was uh, left on the ticket, um, and nobody else would run. Um, Lester Maddox was very popular. And um, so Jimmy called me at home and said, are you sitting down? And I said, no. <laughs> he said, I'm going to run for governor. Well, it was a big shock. He was in the state Senate actually running for the Congress. Um, but he, he decided to run for governor. And um, I started campaigning. I had never done it in my life. Um, and it was only about eight weeks before the election, and nobody knew him out of the, except the, the 14th senatorial district. And so we got in the car, and we have, that was seven counties, and we have 159 counties in Georgia. So we all got in the car. Um, our oldest son could drive, our youngest, our middle son could drive, and Jeff was, was 14, I think. And so he went with me, and we just get in the car and ride into a community, get out, pass out brochures, look up the newspaper, the TV station, if there was one back in those ancient days, and um, go to the next community. Every weekend we got together um, and kind of charted the direction we would go in. Well, I was campaigning um, in Atlanta at a cotton mill at 4.30 in the morning one day. And I had this woman come out with lint all over. She was, she was not as tall as I am. And um, 
I said, I hope you're going home and get some rest uh, after working all night. And she said, well, I'm going home, but I don't know how much rest I'll get because we have a mentally ill daughter and my husband's salary doesn't make ends meet and I have to work too. So he stays home with her in the, day, in the daytime while I work at night. I stay home with her at night while he works. Vice versa, anyway. <laughs> they were taking turns. And I had, I had been campaigning not but just a few days before somebody asked me what I would do for a mentally ill loved one who was in our Central State Hospital. That was the big institution. And um, there had been a big expose of the hospital um, not too many years before that. It was happening all over the country. And, um, I, and people were being moved into the communities before there were any services. And everybody was concerned. Nobody knew what was going to happen to a loved one in the hospital. And it happened over and over and over. And so at that time when I was, I was really um, struck with concern for this woman. Uh, it just touched me so. And so I... Um, um, was in Swainsboro, Georgia, campaigning, and heard that Jimmy was coming to town. This was a very disorganized campaign, I told you. <laughs> and so I stayed and um, had a huge rally. And I got in the back of the room and got in line with everybody and came down. And when Jimmy got to me, um, I don't know how many of you stand in receiving lines, but it's part of my life. And I will reach for somebody while I'm still talking Turn loose and then still. He did that. He reached for me and he was talking to somebody else. And he looked at me and, What are you doing here? <laughs> I said, I came to see what you're going to do for people with mental illness when you're governor of Georgia. <laughs> and uh, he said, We're going to have the best program in the country and I'm going to put you in charge of it. <laughs> well, Well, of course, he didn't put me in charge of it because I didn't know anything about the subject then. But, I, but he appointed a governor's commission to improve services to the mentally and emotionally handicapped, and I became a member of the commission. And my job was to travel around the country and see the facilities and come back and report to the commission and see the needs, not in a critical way, but just finding out what, what people needed to be able to to really serve um, those who, who needed help. And um, that was the beginning of my education about mental illnesses. And then when Jimmy became president, I had a president's commission, and now I have a really, really good program here at the Carter Center. Um, and, and so you can see I worked on mental illnesses and trying to help people have better, better lives for many years. I don't like to say how many because it ages me. <laughs> but I will tell you this. I started when Amy was three years old. Today she is 41. That's a very long time. Well, I, I feel like we're going to talk about stigma tonight, and I feel like I've been fighting stigma all my life, and it has been a very long time. Um, and our mental health program, among other programs that you'll hear about, uh, tonight. Um, we work continuously on trying to overcome stigma. Um, stigma, I, 
I think it's beginning to lift just a little bit, but it is still devastating to people. It hurts people, it isolates them, it humiliates them, and it also, the, the, the thing that is so bad is it keeps them from getting services. Um, they, people don't want to be labeled mentally ill, and so they don't, they don't go for services. And so many people don't know that they can be helped. Um, there should be no stigma. With what we know today about the brain, we know that mental illnesses are diseases of the brain. There should be no more difference in having a mental illness than in, in having a disease of the heart. There just should be, we know now that they're all biological. And um, there should be no stigma. And people need to know um, that mental illness and addictive diseases are not the result of weak will. You've heard all of these things, I'm sure. Bad parenting. A reflection of sin. Can you believe that people, some people say that? It's just incredible. Um, today, because of our knowledge of the brain, mental illnesses can be diagnosed. They can be treated effectively. And the overwhelming majority of people with these illnesses can lead normal lives, living at home, working, going to school. And tonight we're going to talk about these myths and, and uh, misconceptions uh, that are around these because I hope we can dispel some of them and educate people and overcome the stigma. Um, there is nothing, I, I think, that, that could help people with mental illnesses more. Um, there's one bright spot on the scene, and that is we got a parity bill passed this year. Do you know that when the President's Commission in 1978, I think, um, uh, passed its recommendations, one of the recommendations was insurance for mental illnesses. And I have been working on that ever since, trying to get parity in, in parity in insurance for mental illnesses the same as with other illnesses. And I do believe that this is going to do more to help overcome stigma than anything that could happen because I have always thought that if insurance covered it, it would be all right to have it. <laughs> it happened with cancer it, over a time, and I just, I, I just really believe it's going to help. But. Um, Everyone can help. And so when you leave tonight and when you go home, I hope you will pass around what you learned tonight because we're going to try to put the myth on the table and then let people know what the reality is. Um, too many people suffer unnecessarily and we can help them. We can help them have better lives and I need you to help me in your own communities when you go back home. We have to let people know that there should be no stigma and there should be no stigma and we shouldn't feel it in our own hearts. Um, sometimes I think, that, um, I think that it might be hard sometimes, but it all goes back to those times many, many years ago when we didn't understand anything about the illness. It was a total mystery, and, but that, that time is gone. Well, Tom Borneman is our mental health program director, and he's going to tell you some more about the activities of the mental health program, um, including, I suppose, the fellowships 
I think I'll tell you about, a little bit about the fellowship because it's the best program I think we've ever had um, to, to combat stigma. We give um, stipends to journalists. We have mental health fellowships for journalists. And they, they apply with a subject. Um, they come here to the Carter Center to tell us um, what they're going to talk about, a mental health issue. And then they come back in the fall and report. And it's the fall because we're, part of em we're not part of Emory University. But we have a um, um, partnership with Emory. And our year goes with their year. So they come in September and they go uh, come back in September. And um, they, we have had, as John said, 100. Uh, I think actually 105 or something like that, around 110 years. This is our 11th year. And we've had hundreds of newspaper articles. I had one fellow that told me that the, he was the editor of the Oregonian in Oregon, and he told me that the year before he was a fellow, he had he wrote six articles about mental health issues, most of them ne mostly negative. When he had the um, fellowship, he wrote 66 articles, most of them positive. It makes a total difference. There have been four books written. There have been, uh, it's just, it's, it's just been even better than we had anticipated. And we've already gotten 45 applications very early in the period now, and we have six, six United States ones. Um, we have gone international. We, have, uh, we had a program in New Zealand. We, helped, we funded them for five years, and now they're on their own with their own program. We have one in South Africa. We tell them we will work with them for five years, and then they're on their own. So I think this is the last year for South Africa, and now we're in um, Romania. And uh, it, it's, just, it's just surpassed all our expectations. Well, before Tom talks, I want, I want to thank the panelists, and I think they're over here. Um, they're doing very important work in the mental health field, and I'm grateful for them to be here tonight to share with you uh, their thoughts and experiences, and so now, and also their biographies are in your in that information that was given to you, so we can go on with the program. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mrs. Carter. Uh, you can tell uh, where we get our inspiration from in the mental health program here at the Carter Center. I thought I'd take just a couple of minutes, since I understand many of you are here for the first time, uh, to tell you a little bit more about the Carter Center Mental Health Program, and I'll be very brief because I do want to get to our discussion tonight. Um, as was outlined by Dr. Hardman and Mrs. Carter, we work principally on issues of policy change and work with partners all over the nation and sometimes internationally on, on uh, promoting that. But we work very importantly on stigma and stigma and discrimination because make no mistake about it, the end stage of stigma is discrimination uh, in very real forms. Stigma doesn't make people just feel badly. It often promotes policies and practices that actually exclude people from the mainstream of American society. So it has a very insidious element to it that we've got to do something about as a nation. Uh, quickly, some of the other programs that we operate here, we have an annual Georgia Forum 
every May that talks about policy issues facing our state, and we have some daunting ones facing our states, as are every state in the union. In fact, we have a program, a new program, the newest that we've had is, is to work on the Georgia issues in a much more detailed way than we have in the past. And that's something that uh, I'll be talking about tomorrow morning for those of you who can attend. We're having some very serious issues here in the state, and we are lending our voice to try to resolve some of that. We have recently uh, initiated our first new Carter Center Mental Health Program in 11 years, a program on integrating mental health care into primary care. We're very excited about that. That's an emerging area of work uh, around the nation, around the world, and uh, we're very pleased and proud of our program. And Dr. John Bartlett in the front row is there and will be around over the next couple of days, and he can certainly chat with you about the exciting work there. Um, I want to go back to the fellowship program because that's really why we're here today. You've heard some of the statistics. Uh, I urge you to go to cartercenter.org and hit on health programs and then mental health and you've got to kind of track your way to it and you will see in the archive many of the pieces that have been done and uh, you'll see the, the quality of that work. I'm not going to say any more about that now. I think it's time for me to introduce our uh, panelists, have them come up and, and let's get to it. First of all, I'd like to introduce Dr. Benjamin Dress. Uh, ben holds the Rosalind Carter Endowed Chair in Mental Health at the Rollins School of Public Health of Emory University. It's very important to note that his chair, though he is a psychiatrist, his chair is in a school of public health. And one of our overarching messages here is to integrate mental health in all of public health. So Ben, welcome. He's also an extremely close friend and collaborator to the mental health program here. Next is Charles Willis who's a statewide peer wellness initiative director with the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network, an organization that promotes recovery through advocacy, education, employment, empowerment, peer support, and self-help. And welcome, Charles, also a close collaborator with our mental health program. And our last guest tonight is Patrick Corrigan, professor of psychology at the Illinois Institute of Technology. He's also the chief of the joint research programs in psychiatric rehabilitation at the Institute. Uh, the programs are research and training efforts dedicated to the needs of people with psychiatric disabilities and their families. As Mrs. Carter mentioned, the longer bios are in your packet, or were handed to you, I think, when you came in, and welcome for you to take a look at that. Gentlemen, join me, please. Thank you. Um, let me tell you a little bit about our format tonight because I think it would be instructive. We decided to focus on four myths. Uh, we could have gotten 40, uh, but time doesn't permit us to do that. So we tried to get four that really went after some of the core sources of stigma as we know it. And I'll give you those now. What I'm going to ask uh, from my friends and colleagues here is uh, a series of questions and they can respond to re regarding each one of those myths. Uh, at the end of that time, we're going to open it up to you. This is a conversation, and we look forward to you joining us and sharing with us your thoughts and ideas uh, in a, a question and answer session before we finish this evening. Let me give you our, our four myths. Myth number one, people with mental illness are violent. I'm sure you've heard that one before. Number two, most people with mental illnesses are treated by psychiatrists and psychologists. Myth, myth number three, mental illnesses are conditions from which people cannot recover. 
And four, stigma is deeply rooted and unlikely to change. So those are the four we've decided to tackle tonight. And I'd like to start our, our time together with uh, a discussion about people with mental illnesses who are violent. And many people do believe that people with mental illnesses are unpredictable and likely to be violent. Is this true? Pat, would you like to start us off tonight? Well, it makes sense why we would think people with mental illness are violent. The horror of our time are Northern Illinois University or Virginia Tech or Binghamton. And when these horrors happen, we ask ourselves why, and sometimes we fall back to this idea of it's mental illness. And of course they're violent, because when I look on TV, I see violent people with mental illness, and I work in the newspapers, I listen to the radio, see people with mental illness. What's the facts? Research suggests that people with mental illness are a bit more violent than the rest of the population, but let's focus on that word a bit. If I was trying to predict who here would be dangerous, and I could look into your souls, the single best predictor of who's dangerous has nothing to do with mental illness. The single best predictor is gender. Men are about 10 times more violent than people with mental illness. Young and black. Young black men are about 20 times more violent than mental illness. And yet, and yet if we came up with some sort of pre uh, preventative program where we were going to target young black men, we would be horrified, even though we'd be more accurate than the kind of programs the kind of ideas that people with mental illness are dangerous. Ben? Yeah, I mean, just to, to sort of, I think, to start off and kind of put, put the question in context, um, I think a common myth where, the, where people kind of coming from the outside, when they even think about mental illness, they think about sort of two populations, um, two extremes. One is they think about a group of kind of worried well people who you know, probably should just sort of buck up and um, not worry so much. And then they think about kind of um, uh, chronically, severely mentally ill, uh, homeless people who it's not worth even, you know, who, who can't even be treated. The reality of, ment of mental illness to start off with is it's an extremely uh, a broad uh, category that encompasses, that is as varied both across different diagnoses and also particular stories of people within diagnoses, um, as you could imagine. The most common mental illnesses, first of all, to start off with, are depression and anxiety. Uh, and you know, in those populations, um, there, is, there are probably, if anything, you know, reduced levels of certainly externally oriented or you know, violent kinds of uh, uh, activities. In, so in populations, as, as Pat is saying, um, of people, people with more uh, on serious mental illnesses, disorders, say, like schizophrenia, that, that kind of population, um, often uh, patients end up being, or consumers end up being, um, uh, living, uh, uh, being poor, living in circumstances, uh, in other kinds of situations, uh, where uh, there's violence uh, around them. And actually, populations with uh, serious mental illness have uh, about a four times risk of having violence happen to them, uh, which is a much larger problem, actually, than uh, 
violence uh, that would be, um, that they would be uh, involved in. So I guess, you know, overall kind of the bottom line is, first of all, mental illness is hugely varied. Uh, probably what we all think of, what you all think of as mental illness is a much broader category. Uh, and as, as Dr. Hardman said when we first heard it, um, it's extremely common uh, if you look to your right and your left and in front of you and behind you, there's probably someone who, if they haven't had it themselves, their lives have been touched by it. So um, I think it's important to think a little more broadly about what we're even thinking of in terms of mental illness to start off with, and then also to recognize that um, most of the suffering that happens from mental illness has nothing to do with, with what people with mental illness um, are doing to the people around them, it's what happens to the people with the mental illness, and that's where all the suffering really occurs. So, Thanks, Ben. Charles? Uh, let me first uh, start off by saying, Pat, um, I uh, identified black young youth as being um, uh, perpetrators of violence. But, but when I look at, or when I hear statements like that, and I think about the actual population, which is 12% African-American here in the United States, it bothers me to hear that young blacks are perpetrating the most violence. And I think when we look at it from that context, we miss the whole picture. How can 12% of the population actually um, perpetrate the most violence? The same thing happens when you're looking at people who have mental health diagnosis. More blacks and people of color access mental health services in the public arena. So therefore, what we have reported are the histories, the medical histories of those people who access services. There are a lot of people who have the wherefore or the monies to access private uh, services, and therefore they're not a part of the general population when it comes to mental health. So um, violence has been overstated when it comes to personal with mental health. I think what has happened is the way we are engaged both by um, law enforcement officers, or in, in, in some instances, we've, or the family felt a need to call police in order to make sure that their loved one could access services, because it's not always that easy when you don't have money. So in the event of a policeman showing up on the scene, it exacerbates an individual who is already stressed out, who is already confused, and the, uh, and the, um, and the police with the mission, time to resolve the issue, uh, take it upon themselves to um, therefore react with an individual, which causes the whole situation to get out of hand, therefore perpetrating a crime, which is reported, and therefore indicating that people with mental health diagnosis could possibly be more violent than others. And so I'm not here to say that that is not one of the bases for which uh, this concept or this myth on violence has been um, addressed in the media. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you all. Let's move on, if we can, to the next question. Most people with mental illnesses are treated by psychiatrists and psychologists, or another way of saying that, treated in the specialty sector. Ben, you want to address that first? Yeah, I mean, that's a myth that if you had, if you had um, asked that question 30 years ago, wouldn't have been a myth. Uh, that was what mental, the mental health system looked like 30 years ago. Um, 30 years ago, the typ a typical patient uh, would, you know, would present to, say, would feel depressed, would present to a, 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 psychi a psychiatrist or a psychologist. 
uh, and have an extended period of, of you know, talk therapy largely focused on their, on their past, understanding their past. Um, the system is so different today, and it really, over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, has had just a dramatic transformation. Today, uh, typical, uh, the, the sort of the typical person uh, with a, a mental diagnosis is, would be someone who would present to their primary care physician uh, saying that they felt down, maybe were having problems sleeping. The primary care physician would determine that the patient was depressed or had an anxiety disorder and would start a medication. So that's, um, that's really become, um, really to a surprising degree, what mental health treatment is in the United States today. It's not happening in the specialty mental health sector, um, but it's happening in general medical practice. Uh, some of it, it can happen uh, in schools uh, as well. It can happen uh, uh, in, when people are, are talking to their pastors. A lot of, um, most of mental health care today is not delivered in specialty mental health settings. Yeah, Charles, you're a part of a movement now of a new set of providers. Uh, that is gaining traction, actually got a lot of its uh, initial impetus from here in Georgia. Absolutely. Perhaps you want to talk about that a little bit. I, I'm a certified peer specialist, and what that means is that I've been certified through the state of Georgia, DHR and Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network, to engage peers on a one-on-one -on -one and sometimes in group fashions. And all I'm doing is sharing my experience, strength, and hope. Uh, when we talk about treatment, we're pretty much talking about medication, hospitalizations, those kinds of things. But from the perspective of a certified peer specialist, we're looking at recovery. We're looking at wellness. And I think a lot of time is wasted looking on um, um, the illness as opposed to looking on the wellness. Mm -hmm. What the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network has done is to um, 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 uh, certify at least 500 uh, certified peer specialists that are being used throughout the state in different uh, mental health service uh, arenas. Uh, the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network is a nonprofit organization of over 4,000 consumers uh, statewide, and the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network itself employs 42 certified peer specialists, meaning that we employ more certified peer specialists than any agency in the world. And I think the certified peer specialists, which were started here in Georgia by the works of Larry Fricks and Ike Powell, that is now being used to uh, transform other uh, states in their mental health uh, wellness approaches. Uh, I like to say that when we focus on the illness and some of the uh, uh, documents or the instruments that we use to engage or to um, assess a person's mental illness is focusing primarily on the illness as opposed to focus on that person's wellness. Despite having a mental health illness, I have a lot of strengths. I have a, have a lot of desires. I, I, I want to do things with my life. I have a lot of hope on what my life can be. And if we flip to looking at recovery aspect of mental wellness as opposed to uh, just uh, uh, the uh, treatment of mental health, then I think everyone in the community could see the value that we as consumers of mental health services actually bring to the arena. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Charles. I think the emphasis that you pointed out there is, is really an innovation taught to us by those who, uh, who are receiving services, and that is to begin to think a lot more about strengths mm -hmm. and not just about the illness itself. And that, that really transforms the way in we look at, look at the whole treatment exercise. It's quite different when we look at it from that prism.
Right, and, and let me add that we are experts. Not like these gentlemen, mm -hmm. but, I, <laughs> but I'm an expert on me. I know what has worked for me in the past. I know my triggers. I know what my early warning signs are. And I know what to do now that I've been taught how to um, um, uh, engage in wellness, proact as opposed to react to situations as they come my way. Thank you. Uh, one of our mental health task force members is Joel Slack from Alabama. Uh, and Joel is a consumer leader, national leader. And he told us an anecdote, Mrs. Carter will remember at a task force meeting that um, in all his treatment episodes, and he had been hospitalized a number of times for a long time, and he's now living in complete recovery and self-supporting, married with children, a child. And he said in, in his entire time in dealing with the mental health system, nobody ever asked him what helped him get better. Um, think about that a moment. Um, Pat? Want to give us your thoughts on, on uh, where people are treated in the mental health system? Well, I, I think if I try to make sense out of what Ben said and Charles said, it's that um, there's a lot of people with mental illness out there. They're getting services in a lot of different ways. But you know, uh, Dr. Hardman said one out of four people have a serious mental illness, and I think my colleagues here would agree there's many people with mental illness, but I never see them all. Is this the sort of politically correct ideas? Or is it the fact of stigma? I mean, statistically, probably one out of four of us here have a serious mental illness. And we probably don't know who you are because you're in the closet like we are. And that's the fact of stigma. Okay, thank you. All right, let's go to number three. And mental illnesses are conditions from which, which people cannot recover. Charles, why don't you lead us on that one? I think we've already started that. Okay. Uh, let me start by saying um, about eight years ago, I was here downtown Atlanta, Peachtree and Pine, which is a homeless shelter area. And all that I owned was in a plastic bag, and I had cardboard under my arm. And, and I was okay. I got up. I stood in soup lines to get food, and I laid around the cardboard. And believe it or not, because of my illness, the despair associated with it, I thought that was it. Uh, but what happened on February 4th, uh, 2001, I went to an AA meeting. I went to that meeting, I remember this very well because I went to this meeting, and I often went to this meeting, but I went to this meeting this particular night, and I went there for one reason, one reason only, and that was to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> but in the process of drinking two cups of coffee, that was a gentleman telling this story in the front of the room. And this story sounded just like mine. He was a person who had the same uh, um, hopes uh, that I once had, uh, but still had been involved in uh, um, behaviors that were detrimental to his well-being, but had found a way to live life on life terms in a manner that allowed him to live a better life, a changed life, if you will. If you had him to tell it, he'd say he's living for the first time in his life because he had been suffering or um, um, surviving. And there I was astonished that there was a person just like me who had flew over the cuckoo's nest. And I said, if he could do it, I could do it. And that was the beginning of this journey for me to actually um, pursue a life that I didn't think was possible for me uh, that has given me an opportunity to use the strengths that I have to engage in sharing who I am and be okay with who I am and open myself up to scrutiny, 
letting people know I have a mental health diagnosis. And what has happened through this process, I've learned to mentor with people just like myself. So the recovery process for me started in a way um, that was, has become unique. Well, not unique. In fact, we have more and more of this happening all the time. We see people who have grown to uh, recovery, and if they can do it, we can do it. That's the attitude we have. And so we see people that are moving out into communities. They're working. They're sustaining their lives. They're going on with uh, living. And if they can do it, we can do it. That's the concept that we use. Um, but we do know that um, to take medication is to only help with the symptoms. Your symptoms can be at bay and you're still not being recovered. It's the symptoms, when the symptoms are at a, uh, a point where you can actually live with your symptoms, that, engage, that puts you in a position to then engage and get the network, the supports, the education, uh, the advocacy that will help you to find the life that you want to live for yourself. And in the process of doing that, we become contributing persons in the community, uh, taxpaying individuals, people who assist in uh, paving the way for others to follow. Thank you. Ben, I know in the course of your work and your research, um, you get very involved at the community level in what's going on and, in fact, have a program on wellness, uh, the uh, research enterprise on, on wellness. And perhaps you could talk about it in the context of recovery, and I know Charles is part of that team. Sure. I mean, well, well first, just to sort of put it in context, I mean, recovery is kind of a tricky term, and as a, as a, as a clinician, it took me a while, I guess, to kind of wrap my head around what it is. It's not, what it's not, as I understand, it's not like you have a pneumonia, you take an antibiotic, and then you're recovered in that way. What it is, is, is what, what Charles is talking about. It's, um, it's coming to a point that, that, um, that you um, are defined by something other than your illness. Uh, your symptoms may be there, they may come, they may go. Um, you're using a variety of strategies, maybe medications, maybe coping, maybe peers, maybe you know other supports to kind of deal with them, but they become a, a, a smaller part of your life and of, of who you are. And it's a process of, of, I mean, I guess really what you're recovering is kind of you. You know, it's, it's, it's yourself in the process. So, so as Tom is saying, I mean, a big focus of, of my work and work that actually I've, I've done with uh, Charles being a very central part of it has been on thinking about the, the issue of, of health and wellness as being a part of that because recovery, really in its broadest sense, to be able to, um, to have recovery, and um, you have to be healthy physically and you have to be alive. And uh, there's increasingly kind of troubling kind of data about the fact that, that people um, with mental illnesses for a variety of reasons uh, die as, as much as 25 years younger than the, the rest of the population. Um, so, so again, I mean, I think there's an increasing recognition that recovery has to not just be about your mental state, but it also has to be about feeling well physically wellness and feeling well spiritually as well. I mean, it's really a holistic, broad picture. Uh, and I think it's, it's as a, again, as a clinician, it's been a really health, 
a healthy and important concept for me to think about, and I think for the field to think about, because it's really moving past this, this idea of mental uh, disorders just being about, or people with mental disorders just being about the disorders or being the disorders. Uh, and um, I think it's probably been the single most important uh, kind of change in the field, uh, research and in policy um, and in clinical practice. Uh, it's probably been the single most important concept and change in the field since I began training um, 20 years ago. What Ben is talking about is the study they indicated. This was a study by the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors. They indicated that we were dying 25 years earlier than persons, persons without a mental health diagnosis. And so what Ben uh, is describing is a research project that we partnered, well, I worked with him on. But uh, the importance of that research or the study that was put out by Nashville is that it discovered the neck. It connected the head to the body. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> there, is no, there is no health without mental health. So we finally got people to recognize the fact that as, as healthy people, it's all over the head, the mind, the body, and the spirit. And so this new uh, uh, discovery, the neck, uh, let people know that when we recover, we're not just talking about mentally, but physically, we begin to eat better, we begin to engage in community, we know how to meditate, we learn to meditate, we even learn to eat better. And that's on poverty level income, by the way. Great. Okay. Yeah, I just want to look at this issue from recovery from a different direction, because sometimes I'm concerned that we're just being politically correct. I mean, I, I've been around as long as, maybe a little longer than Ben, and I still remember in school, I learned that schizophrenia was a dementia precox. Dementia is what happens to my grandmother when she saw Alzheimer's precox it comes early. So everybody with schizophrenia was expected to end up on the back ward, unable to take care of themselves. That's what I learned in school. I also learned in school that things like schizophrenia with a kiss of death diagnosis. And so about 20 years ago, people like Charles come talking to us about this recovery sort of stuff, and I, I am not going to buy into this political correctness, but there are numbers. You know, if you take 300, they did this research, you took 300 people with schizophrenia, and you followed them for 30 years, what became of them? 100 got out of the mental health system altogether. They were as quote-unquote normal as anybody. 100 did pretty good, the good psychiatrist, and that last 100 needed the sort of superhuman psych rehab issues. So recovery is not the exception. Charles is not the exception. Recovery is the rule. And I think that's an important thing to note. And these are longitudinal studies that have followed people over a long period of time. Um, so the, re the uh, reduction or the elimination of symptoms is actually well documented over that, that lengthy period of time. Charles? But when we think about recovery, recovery is individualized. What recovery is for me? what I want or what I need for my life, not a, a grid that's uh, uh, set apart by some clinician or um, the community. It's what I want to do in my life. It's what I want and how I feel about who I am. I work with a gentleman who has uh, paintings that are here in the Carter Center, and uh, Jerome uh, is living with schizophrenia, but he is an excellent 
excellent and dynamic person when it comes to being a, a father, a husband, an artist, a hardworking person, and a person who wants to get on with his life despite his illness. So when I'm thinking about in, uh, recovery, and art is a part of his recovery uh, outlay. This is the result he creates through art. But for some of us, just having a, home, a roof over our head, uh, for others, just being able to make ends meet on a daily basis, or to get married, have children, have a happy, productive life, that is what we, we think of when we're talking about recover. We're talking about what's for the individual. As, as each of you are speaking, um, it's really talking about recovery as, as almost a liberating event. Uh, even inside the therapeutic relationship and the relationship to the larger society. You know, the problem with traditional mental health care is we stole hope away from people. And I think the nice thing about recovery is we've reinstilled that. That's a great point. Thank you. Uh, stigma is deeply rooted and unlikely to change. That's certainly what we've heard. And there's some research that would tend to indicate that it's going to be a tough, tough slog to go. Um, Pat, why don't you start us on that? You've done a lot of work and research in that area. Yeah, I'm very interested in what stigma is, but you know advocates don't care so much about what stigma is because they know it's a problem. They want to know how to fix it. And so we've done some carefully controlled research. We've taken people from the general public and we randomize them to two groups. This group gets education about mental illness, what the myths of mental illness like we're talking about now and the facts. And this group gets to meet a person with mental illness, gets to meet Charles. And you can sort of figure out for yourself, just sitting here, what has the bigger impact? I mean, again, there's some benefit in learning about the facts and how, how they're juxtaposed to the myths, but there's some reality about meeting a person with serious mental illness. And that's what the research shows. Education has some benefits, but people with mental illness just, just, um, just hit us in the face with how the stigma is wrong. So the interesting thing is if you really, really, really want to take advantage of this contact, we would call, um, we would take brave people like Charles and clone him. And the way we would clone him is everybody in the audience who has a mental illness would come out with their mental illness. We're talking one out of five, one out of five people, 20% of the population have a mental illness. If those people came out, and don't get me wrong, that's a big decision to make. If those people who come out would have a big impact. And personally, over the last three or four years of going around talking about that, I've decided to come out. I'm a person with serious mental illness, having been hospitalized and on meds for 30 years. And, and despite all my training and all much I think about it, I still know what stigma is. Stigma is that shame I feel every time things are going bad and I'm a psychiatrist. Or, or stigma, um, last, last spring, um, I had to be admitted through the emergency room for non-psychiatric reasons. I remember calling my wife up and said, you tell the kids I'm not going because I'm nuts this time. Or I'm sitting next to somebody at church talking about my background and him saying, well, you've really accomplished a lot with mental illness. I said, no, no, I'm not mentally ill. Stigma starts at home with, with many of us. And so that's why it's near and dear to trying to change it. In your own research, you've actually identified several different forms of stigma, and I think you just got at one of the key ones, a, a form of self-stigma. Uh, perhaps you could share with our audience um, some of the other forms of stigma that you've uncovered in the course of your long career. We can look at three. Um, one, we've been talking about a lot, public stigma, what we, the public, do to people with mental illness. 
Um, we endorse discrimination. I don't want to hire people with mental illness because they're dangerous. I don't want to rent to them because they'll trash out the apartment. I don't want to provide the same level of health care because after that, they don't need it. Those are all public stigma. Self-stigma is what we do to ourselves. We internalize it. I'm mentally ill. Mentally ill people are weak, so I must be weak. And this third one is label avoidance. We sort of hinted at this issue. Is you know that about a quarter of the population would benefit from mental health treatment? A quarter of the population would? And less than a half of that quarter, less than half of people who would benefit from treatment ever go. And the big reason why we don't go is we're trying to avoid the label. And that's the third one. Thank you. Good. Charles? Uh, when I think about stigma, I think about it um, in a couple of ways. One is that part of what we believe as individuals, we got from somebody else. And so what we did then was to internalize this negative talk that we heard from other people and internalized it and then bought into the fact that we were defective or something was wrong with us. But it came from the outside. Now, when it comes to uh, uh, stigma, I dare you ask everyone in this room who have a heart condition to stand up. Why then is it necessary for persons living with a mental health diagnosis to have to stand up. We're all people. We're all living with a chronic, condi a, a chronic condition. Heart disease is chronic. Mental health is chronic. So why does society look at us as having to be the one? We want to be considered just as people. We want to be treated with dignity and respect. And we're just learning how to do that. Because oftentimes, instead of looking to the outside community, we've looked on the inside. We've been trapped in the mental health box, and that's all that we've known. There is no hope to integrate into the community. There's no way to be included into the whole uh, community. And so therefore, we've been isolated, even as we live here today. We haven't been included totally because Stigma. Nobody wants to live next to us. We can't get housing in certain areas because no one wants to live next to us. And so, therefore, it's, we're doing all we can. We're coming forth to let people know that, yeah, we do recover. Uh, but at the same time, there has to be a change in the mentality of the, uh, uh, the, the public in general. Why treat us any different than you would treat a person who has a heart disease or a liver disease? They're chronic conditions. And all we want to do is be treated as people. Kim, you some thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, completely echo and just want to kind of reinforce what, what, both, what both Pat and Charles have said. I mean, I think that, that unfortunately, we humans are wired to, to take shortcuts, kind of, sloppy ways of thinking. We see, other, we see other people and we put them in boxes in whatever way is most convenient to do it. And for, um, for mental disorders, like with any other kind of discrimination, 
uh, until we get to, to actually know the person, the shortcut is we think of them as, having, as being the mental disorder instead of a person who happens to have a condition. And I think as, as, both, as both Patrick and Charles have said, really the, the answer is, I mean, you know, people are just people and that ultimately, you know, there's, there's some benefit and I think having the, 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 the statistics at hand, what we've been talking about uh, tonight is, is very important and dispelling the myths, but ultimately it's really about just, you know, uh, seeing people as people, not seeing uh, people as as kind of you know, seeing people as um, uh, other human beings instead of something that's out there as as a diagnosis, um, and that's really I mean ultimately that's a way around not only stigma but all other kinds I think of discrimination. So, great. Um, what we're talking about tonight is, is stigma, and, and I want to ask each of you to do a little thinking and sharing with us about where do you think it's headed? Is, are we going in a better direction? Or are we making some gains? Pat? Um, Mrs. Carter says she thought things were getting better. Um, <laughs> there are um, um, some pretty sobering research that would suggest that if you look at opinions from 1956 to 1996 to 2006, and actually views that people might not are dangerous have increased two, three times. So the public is much more likely to view people with mental illness as dangerous than in the past. How come? Well, probably TV and the movies, since that's the way TV and the movies represents things. So, so the impact, the, the subtlety, the stigma is still there. I'm still back to, I, I think the best way to challenge this is sort of at the level of a social movement. And again, what, what Charles and his colleagues have done is I think the more people that come out with mental illness, the more we're going to see it's not other people, it's us. And when we recognize it in us, um, our natural tendency will be to push away all that stigma and, and welcome people. How about uh, in the area of depression and anxiety? Right. Um, do you think the, the stigma is beginning to lift there, Ben? You're nodding. Yeah, I mean, I th that was what I was going to say. Is I think that that a lot of progress has been made in terms of depression and anxiety, in the sense of, I mean, if you look at rates of treatment, they've gone up by something like two thirds or almost doubling, really, in the last fifteen or twenty years. Uh, and in part, that's just become. Uh, that, that it's because they're, they're, they're treatments that are a lot easier to administer, new medications like um, you know, Prozac that can be used in primary care settings. Uh, I think that as, uh, as Pat is indicating, uh, there is still a fair amount of stigma, um, uh, pockets of stigma for more serious um, uh, mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So I think we're making progress in part uh, led by, by new treatments, more wider acceptance of it, which then becomes kind of a, um, uh, a kind of a positive loop where you have more people who are treated, more people who are comfortable with talking about the fact that they're treated, um, but I think still pockets of stigma uh, for more serious conditions. Charles? Um, I remember about three or four months ago, that was this, um, person with a mental health diagnosis trying to access services at the uh, emergency room at some hospital in New York. 
and she shows up, and uh, she's disregarded. In my mind, I'm saying to myself that she's probably been there before, and the staff just assumes uh, there's the same thing. She's recycling some mental health condition. But as she sits there, uh, nobody comes to her aid. She finally falls out of the chair into the floor. The janitor comes. He mops around her. The um, nurse comes, kicks her on the leg. And so finally, when it's time to uh, perform treatment, they go to get her up off the floor, and she's dead. Um, I think with the parity, passed on the parity bill, where mental health services are now being integrated or into whole health services, the stigma then can be alleviated to some degree. But it's going to take a whole lot of work. We know people in the rural uh, counties here in the state of Georgia avoid going to the public mental health services because their neighbors see that their car is there, so therefore they're out it. Um, I think the whole concept of um, using what's available, a one-stop shop, to have both mental health services and, and health services provided at the same um, location would then help to dispel some of the stigma. Um, I think we have to, we as people have to begin to understand that um, stigma is a social thing. Um, that wasn't so long ago that people like myself were stigmatized, and at times we still are. But nevertheless, We've proven to be productive citizens. We've proven to be worthy in the community, that we can make contributions to the whole society. And I think we just need to be given an opportunity or a chance. And I'm saying that to say this, that um, if given a roof over our heads, um, a job, uh, opportunities to um, use our skills that we have and uh, live in the community among other people to model what quote unquote normal society is like would help a lot of us get beyond the feeling of being different, of being isolated and become a part of the whole setting. I mentioned uh, earlier uh, the end stage of stigma is discrimination often. Um, do you see any movement in that area? The parity, of course, maybe a, a more obvious uh, move forward. It, it only took us 40 years, but um, uh, it, has ha it has happened. But other forms of, of discrimination that, that uh, stigma might affect, any thoughts on that, Ben? Well, um, if you look at the kinds of conditions about which there's been discrimination in the past, um, cancer, for instance, initially uh, there was people with cancer were regarded, first of all, as possibly having cancer-prone personalities or um, having somehow brought it on themselves. Uh, and this was before people really knew much about it or knew that it could be treated. And then the same thing happened with HIV uh, in the early 80s, where when people really didn't know, know about it and also uh, what caused it, uh, how, it could be, how it could be spread, um, uh, or how or that it could be treated, uh, there was an enormous amount of, of fear and stigma which ultimately led to discrimination. So I think that one of uh, the piece, one of the pieces uh, that is allowing uh, us 
to kind of get past some of that discrimination with, with mental illnesses, as Mrs. Carter said, initially recognizing that these are real illnesses, uh, they're, they're uh, biological conditions, uh, and that they're treatable, and that they're, they're highly treatable. Uh, and I think that ultimately is going to be an important tool along with uh, the other kinds of orientations that, that, that Pat and Charles have talked about um, that will allow us to get past uh, stigma and discrimination. Charles? Yeah, let me add this. Um, believe it or not, I think the economic decline is going to help us with stigma. There are persons who are entering the mental health service arena for the very first time, some of which are finding it stressful to live in the current economic situations to access the services for the very first time. These are normal people that have hit a crisis in their lives, and so there they are accessing services. And uh, I think um, because of that, and, and I know the number of people accessing services today compared to years ago has almost doubled in some instances because there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of depression, there's a lot of issues going on in households. So these people are coming coming for services. I think that is gonna help the whole idea of moving beyond it's you. Finally, it's me too. And I think this is gonna help. I hate to look at it that way. But, you know, and again, media. Media plays a major role. Uh, the young uh, school teacher, I mean Sunday school teacher who is now charged with killing the young lady. Well. Uh, nobody has proven it or anything, but nevertheless, uh, she, there's an association now of mental health diagnosis. Uh, the gentleman who, after losing his job, uh, killed all his five children and wife and himself, uh, they look at it mental health. You know, hardly ever do we get an opportunity to share what really mental health looks like. Um, I, I only represent myself. I'm not representing mental health, I'm representing Charles. So, that's a different in the concept, and we're not able to always do that. The SAMHSA and CMHS has um, put forth some effort and some monies to come out with what a difference a friend make. This is a campaign to help engage people to support um, one another in crisis situations so the stigma uh, is not looked upon as um, so much as a stigma, but as things happen, and this is the result of things happening, so I'm here to support you no matter what. Thank you. Any, Pat, any thoughts in on that? In terms of services, I'm most interested in getting people back to work. <clears throat> so have things changed in that regard? Uh, many of you may know about the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, which requires uh, employers, amongst other things, to provide reasonable accommodations to help people with mental illness get in a job. So we did a neat study once. We called all these employers in Chicago, went in the, in the in Chicago Tribune looked these guys up. And when we called them, we were asking them questions about hiring people with mental illness. And I think one guy hit it real well. He says, I don't know if it's AAA or NBA or the NCAA. I just know there's some rules out there that suggest I have to be open to hiring people with mental illness or I'll get in trouble. Uh. Well, <laughs> Chicago spent a lot of money opening up um, a homeless shelter in downtown Chicago. And they set aside, I think it was 37 beds for persons living with a mental health diagnosis. But people who live with a mental health diagnosis were not able to access those beds because they had criminal records. Isn't that something? Huh? I said before you're a convicted felon. Uh, 
Part of the reason is because I wasn't well. Um, and I didn't like myself, and I tried to destroy myself. Um, but today, I've um, learned through that experience that I could do better, I could live better. Uh, there are so many restrictions that we're having to deal with on a daily basis. Uh, like you, for some people, it's just to get up, put on a smile, and go to work. Well, we have to, do, we have to work extra hard, or else we're going to be identified as a slacker, or it's our mental health. And how many times have you gone to work and say, ah, I didn't take my medicine today, as an excuse for being tardy or being off key? I, yeah, okay, that's it. <laughs> all right, thank you all. I think we want to open it up to you all now. Uh, we have microphones on each side. We'd ask that you just come on up and ask your question. And if you could keep it uh, relatively short so we make sure we get through uh, everybody we possibly can. Yes, ma'am. Hi, uh, Jewel Crawford. Um, um, I want to first of all applaud Mrs. Carter and all of you for addressing this issue um, that's so important uh, in our society. Um, and um, I, wanted, I did want to say that I beg to differ with Dr. Corrigan about black males being more violent. I just think that black males have historically been the victim of violence, whether it's been through slavery, lynchings, police brutality, police shootings. I mean, I think that history indicates that black males have been historical victims you know, of violence. And I mean, the NRA is not necessarily a black organization. And they're certainly, you know, I think, you know, carrying guns indicates that you may use them for some sort of violence. So I just don't think that um, that, that really um, holds up. But um, the other thing that I want to say is I think we have to look at this mental health issue in a broader context in our society. And I think until we start really facing up to some things and really looking at ourselves, you know, as Americans and as our history, you know, that we're, we're not really going to solve this issue. I mean, what, what, and what I'm getting at is that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we have so, sociopaths in high places running corporations, okay? <laughs> when you don't care about what happens to other people, you know, when, you don't, when you're willing to kill people because you want their oil, their resources, what they have, and you will kill them for it, something's wrong with you. You know, when you don't care if your kids work in a sweatshop and make in a factory somewhere and you give them 10 cents, you know, and you don't care anything about their living conditions, you are a sick person. Now, this society is pervaded by violence. And we see it on television and we see it in video games and our children are, you know, doing this all the time and killing and shooting people and it seems so distant. And then we wonder, you know, when this trickles down and there's a shooting or, you know, uh, uh, some other incident happens, you know, how could this happen? But, I mean, we have to take a serious look at ourselves as a society. And there's a lot of sickness because if people came in on an individual level to my office and said, well, somebody has, they have nicer things than me or whatever, and I want to kill them and get it. Now, I would admit those, that person to a hospital. But when it happens on a corporate level, you know, we just say, oh, well, you know, whether it's Wall Street stealing people's money or whatever it is, you know, and destroying families Thank and you. homes. So, there, you know, there's a broader context right. to uh, look at this mental illness picture right. in. And I would like to hear your response to that. 
Uh, mental health occurs in the real world when the real world sucks. So does our mental health. It's <laughs> rather succinct. <laughs> Follow that one. Good answer. Yes, ma'am. I'm an attorney from Austin, Texas, and I've been a psychiatric social worker. So I kind of combine those two things and work at pro bono with men on death row. And this is to address, a, I'm with her about young black men. If you look at the reason that young black men may commit more crimes, they're depressed and they use drugs that are illegal to try to self-medicate, or they use alcohol and drive, and they wind up in prison. The white boy who does that doesn't wind up in prison because he has a better lawyer. If you look at the men who commit violent crimes, often it's a reaction to depression because they feel hopeless, their, their wife is leaving them, and they decide to kill themselves and her and the family. These are mental health issues. This is not that there are violent people that we need to fear, but this is a stigma that we've extended to certain people in our society. So we're afraid of young black men if we see them on the street, rather than seeing them as my child, who if I saw him and I saw he was hurting, I would do something about it. It's time we address what's going on with our young people. Often, like the young lady Ms. Carter told about who had the mentally ill child, I've known many women who are working two and three jobs to support their family. Therefore, the child is at home uncared for without the kind of training and teaching that a parent who doesn't have to do that can provide. That child may grow up to have social problems that we're not addressing. This is part of our mental health problem because we've got more young black men locked up than there's any reason to do, and we're not treating that mental health problem. Thank, Thank you. you. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. I'm Dr. Diana Nelson, a retired physician. And I've also, since I retired, uh, taken training as a peer counselor. I have walked with several severely depressed people who, because of the stigma, I mean, one gentleman, you know, he didn't want to see a psychiatrist because, you know, he was looking at depression as a personal failure. And, you know, and I, I talked to him about Mike Wallace. I think people like Mike Wallace going public about his depression has helped. Uh, using the analogy of, you know, the brain is like a chemical thermostat, and when you get depressed, the thermostat has just been, re been set at a lower setting, and you just can't talk yourself out of it or snap your fingers. And that's why the medication helps reset that thermostat. And that did help him to accept finally medication. But if you have the stigma of accepting a mental illness, and you get depressed or anxious, you self-medicate. What do you do with? You do alcohol and you do drugs. And I've been working with people who've, you know, had undiagnosed or untreated depression or mental, you know, problems or dual diagnoses with a more severe thing, who are on drugs. And um, if you don't treat, you know, get to the underlying causes, you will have more violence because it's the people who are mm -hmm. on drugs or alcohol that are more apt to take the gun and act on it. So that's just a comment, but okay. I think Thank you. you know, you're doing great work. Thank you. Let me say that Mary Ellen Copeland has uh, worked out that uh, 
it's the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, which uh, supports people in their wellness and it helps to identify triggers, uh, supports, um, and everything necessary to continue the, um, your quest for wellness. So that may be uh, a tool that some people uh, look into. Thank you. Copeland Center. Yes, sir. My name is uh, Murali Savarajan, and I'm from Seattle. Um, all of you spoke very uh, eloquently and strongly about the fact that there's a lot of stigma associated with mental illness and that uh, mental illness is treatable. The subtext is that you should get treatment and get it early, right? Yes. Is that, is that one of the messages? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, my question is, is there something as getting the treatment a little bit too early, in fact? I'm particularly referring to all the things in the news media about getting kids on drugs, fluoxetine, that uh, causes some issues, suicidal tendencies, and so on and so forth. And as a parent of a young children and kids, I want to ask you, you know, what is your view on diagnosing mental illness in children who we know are emotionally labile, at least? Ben, you want I to give me so. No, I mean, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, basically, so what happened between, say, 1990 and 2000 and, you know, and, and, and now uh, is with, I think, the more widespread use of treatments and medications in particular, you see more wide, uh, widespread treatment of the population in general, and that's people both with more uh, serious symptoms and also people with, with fewer symptoms. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think you, you have to find the right balance ultimately, not just sort of raising rates of treatment indiscriminately, but trying to make sure the treatment is targeted to people who are gonna, who are gonna benefit from it as well. So I, I think that there has been a rising rate of treatment, and I know that there's, there are some concerns, and I think legitimate in some cases, that um, at times um, uh, there may be over-treatment of, of uh, people with more minor conditions. And of course, while medications are great and they work, uh, like all treatments, uh, there are both benefits and risks. And so you have to be careful uh, and have effective both diagnosis and then follow-up to make sure that the right people are getting treated and the people aren't having you know, side effects from it. I think on balance, if you had to look at the benefits of having, you know, of the greater rates of treatment of having treated people who needed it versus some of potentially the downsides of some people receiving treatment um, who may not have needed it. Uh, I would say that on balance, probably the benefits have outweighed the risks. But I think ultimately what you're saying, which is we have to be careful about making sure that the right people are treated in the right way at the right time is really important. I'm glad you raised that. Right. Any comments? Uh, I think also it's important to be an informed consumer and find out, uh, I'd certainly say it for your child, uh, but for yourself or, or anybody else that you care about, find out about that condition and what are the various treatments available and what kind of efficacy does it have and effectiveness. And there's a lot of data out there, much of it now translated uh, for general utilization. And talk very frankly with the practitioner that you see about options and what can you expect if you try this treatment? Um, I think there's no better way um, of getting good care than being an informed consumer. And I would say that, whether it's in your primary care environment to manage your hypertension or a mental illness. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. 
My name's Naomi Tsu, and I'm an attorney here in Atlanta, and I first want to start by thanking all of you for being here and for sharing your knowledge. And Mr. Willis, especially, thank you for adding context to the um, issue of violence perpetrated by and perhaps suffered by young black men. And my question is, can you offer practical suggestions about talking with people who we interact with in our daily lives who may have mental illness about ways to engage around this? And I'm talking low-level typical stuff, a coworker who seems to struggle with anger or depression, a neighbor who seems to struggle with alcoholism. And I'm asking as somebody who's, who copes with depression herself and is perfectly willing to talk about it, but ways to engage around these topics because there is stigma and you don't, I don't want to insult people. And so I'd appreciate ideas that you have. Thank you. Thanks. So you're asking whether there are, um, that if I'm in an office and I see somebody next to me looking anxious or depressed, how I would approach them? Yeah. Or even if it's, and it's maybe somebody who I interact with daily, and so it's not just looking, but maybe through verbalizations, it's more obvious than just looking. It surely is a really tough question, because it's at the heart of what all of us in the room go into, which is how do you approach somebody um, as a human, trying to reach out to them and yet not break into their private space. I think that's the balance. I think you might say, I see you hurting, I see you having trouble, I see this is difficult. Um, can I be there for you? Um, prepared for them to open up and you to step in and help, and prepared for them to close up and ask you to get away. Charles? Pat? <laughs> <laughs> I love you. But I noticed that you seem a little agitated or something. And it reminds me when I had that agitation. And I know for me, it was because I was experiencing some um, difficult emotions that I really didn't want to look at. But once I did, I was able to work through that. So, you know, I love you, I care about you. See, here I am, uh, I'll support you in this, um, and I'm an example of being able to go through that. How about that? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, I, I'm next, my name is Ed, I'm a teacher uh, from rural Georgia. I got drafted into working with kids who were called behavior disordered kids but they're emotionally disturbed kids. But a much, much bigger problem than the kids a lot of times was their family. They came from an environment where, you know, they were acting out. You, they got identified as being emotionally disturbed. And they were doing great when you went into their home and saw what kind of environment they came from. Is there anything we can do about that? <laughs> I, I taught school for a short period, and I noticed um, with the pupil that I had that oftentimes when, when, when uh, children run out of things to do, they act out. But uh, So I always worked at keeping them busy, busy work, um, to help them focus on something else because uh, I have grandchildren, and, and, and one of the things that happens with them is that... <laughs> 
they'll, they'll get finished and they have nothing to do and they'll just wreak havoc. Uh, and, and so I know to keep people busy is one way uh, to work on that issue or something I use to work on that. But from the clinician standpoint, I, I think a lot of these time. issues aren't clinical. I think they're grassroots, they're personal, they're church-based, they're community-based, and uh, we may want to look at those settings and those families from that perspective as much as from a pill or a test. Indeed. Yes? I wish I could be up there with y'all talking. Uh, I feel like next time I want to be. Uh, I've said before to people that you can't really predict the future, but if you're on top of a mountain, you can see, uh, you can see a little bit further down the road than everybody. And I feel like I see people further down the road. People that know me probably wouldn't think that about me, but uh, the reason I say that is I've, I don't know anybody that has known and sat down and talked to the variety of people that I know and have sat down and talked to. I've had the privilege of sitting down and talking to Miss Carter and Jimmy. I have had the privilege, I'm gonna say privilege, of talking with mafia bosses and everything in between. And uh, I just feel like there's so much I could bring to the table about people in general. And next time, I guess the question is, can I be up there with y'all talking? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, we do these events about every two years, and, uh, and our, topic, our topics do change, but uh, thank you for your comments. Uh, I'm afraid this is gonna have to be our last question. Um, this is uh, our most enjoyable part, too. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I hear dissonance in the audience. We can see it. We can see it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> wow, you got a cheering crowd. Oh, uh, yeah, they've seen me here before. <laughs> uh, I don't even know where to start. I would say that there's probably everyone in this room has been touched by MI, mental illness. Uh, I think there's structural problems in the system. I think your myth on violence uh, has to do with the person has to be claimed a danger to himself or others to get treatment. So I think that perpetuates it. I think there's problems in your hospitals where you triage individuals. A person comes in and if you've ever dealt with anybody that is psychotic, they're not gonna sit there and wait their turn to be evaluated. You know, if you can't get them done right then and there, it's not going to happen. You can also, unless they are a danger to themselves or others, you cannot get treatment. Unless you're, you're talking about the mild depression where you can just go to your doctor and get an antidepressant, that's different. But when they uh, have gone to their psychiatrist and had their medicine changed because it's cheaper, and the next thing you know, you got psychosis. You can't deal with it. And you can't get the cops to help you. Okay. I've Thank had you. a brother that has been, had mental illness for 40 years. 
He's out in the middle of traffic with McDonald's Switzer sticks directing the universe, but he's still not a danger to himself or others. I had to go to a restaurant and claim that he was a danger to himself and dial 911 to get treatment, and that's what I was told by the police. So I think there's system problems. I think families would love to get in there and support their families and help them, but they're afraid of uh, the financial liability, and they're also afraid of just in general not having to take over guardianship or whatever. Thank you for your comments. Sorry. Thank you all very much, and I apologize to those who didn't get an opportunity to ask their questions and ask Dr. Hardman to join us. Well, uh, thank you, Tom, and, and thank you to the panel. Let's give you a little hand of applause. And special thanks to Mrs. Carter and the mental health team. And as you can see, these are not simple issues that we're dealing with at the Carter Center, but we do have a very strong team that's working on all of these issues, and we will keep you informed from time to time as we make progress. Now, we look forward to seeing all of you in the morning, and the shuttles will be available to pick you up at the hotel and bring you here, just as they are now outside, ready to return you to the Marriott tonight. And I want to remind you that since this was webcast, it is on the website, which is cartercenter.org, and you can listen to it again or refer your friends to it, but also go to that site to look for the topics for next year's conversation series for the year 2009-2010. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the evening and look forward to seeing you in the morning. Good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.